Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Butts and Guts. I'm your host, Scott Steele, the chair of colorectal surgery here at the Cleveland Clinic in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. And today we're going to talk about something that we have not discussed on this podcast before, and that is what is glycogen storage disease? And I am absolutely pleased to have Dr. Katakal Radhakrishnan, who's our Director of Nutrition and Intestinal Rehabilitation here at Cleveland Clinic Children's, and super excited to have you here. Dr. Radhakrishnan, welcome to Butts and Guts. Thank you, Dr. Scott Steele, and I'm equally happy to be here with you guys. So we always like to start out here on Butts and Guts with just getting to know you a little bit better. So tell us where you're from, where'd you train, and how did it come to the point that you're here at the Cleveland Clinic? So I am from um, originally from south of India in a small state called Kerala. It's a kind of very tropical place. And when you look outside today, you wonder why I'm here. It's all snowy. And, but either ways, I, I trained in England in between in pediatrics and a little bit of training prior to that in pediatrics in, in, in India. And then I came here and I never left the Cleveland Clinic since 2000. So I trained in pediatric gastroenterology here. But I'm also a pediatric hepatologist, and I have boards in pediatric transplant hepatology. And my one of my interest, big interest area, other than nutrition, is metabolism and disorders of metabolism related to the gastrointestinal system, particularly the liver. I also had the, uh, the medical side of the bowel transplant program at the Cleveland Clinic for Pediatrics as well. So let's start here. So we talked about today our topic, what is glycogen storage disease, but really give me, a, give me a bigger, broader view. What's glycogen and what is glycogen storage disease and why are we talking about it? So, so glycogen basically is starch in your body. So when it's outside your body, it's starch. When it's inside your body, it's glycogen. Glycogen uh, are chains of glucose uh, connected by bonds with branch points, so it's a long chain of glucose, if you think about it, and then have branches at sides, uh, which again, bonds of glucose. It's kind of a, think of like a big mesh, basically, of glucose. When, um, and glycogen acts like a storage of energy when you're fasting, or in between meals. When you eat, um, we need glucose for your day-to-day -day needs, uh, what's happening in your body as, as, we, as we are going. And then whatever we don't need, we store it as glycogen or as fat. Glycogen in your body lasts about 8 to 12 hours in general. So when you have glycogen storage disease, you, you have problems most of the times with breaking down glycogen uh, for your body's needs. When I started training in medical school in 1985, there were eight different types of glycogen storage disease. Now there are 15. That is due to the advancements in testing and science, basically. Um, now we're going to focus more on liver-related glycogen storage disease. So that'll be type 1, type 3, type 6, type 9, and type 0. So you mentioned these different ones, and so give us a little bit more about each of these types, and, and why are there different types? So the whole process of breaking down glycogen is called glycogenolysis, or breaking down glycogen. Now there is also another aspect to it, which is making glycogen, or glycogen synthesis. Due to different um, enzymes being involved, uh, in glycogen breakdown or glycogenolysis, there are different types of disorders because of that. The most common type of glycogen storage disease of the liver is glycogen storage disease type 1. There are two types, 1A and 1B. 1A is due to a mutation in enzyme called glucose 6-phosphatase. So as glycogen is broken down and formed glucose 6-phosphate, you've got to break the phosphate from the glucose 6 molecule 
to release glucose into the bloodstream. So any defect in this uh, will cause glycogen to accumulate in the liver. And so babies come with a big liver uh, or children come with big liver uh, and low glucose when they fast. Now, type 3 glycogen storage disease, which is the other one, the severity of which is a little less than type 1A, it's due to a defect in enzyme called debranching enzyme. As the glycogen is broken down, the branches cannot be broken off. And they can manifest again with low glucose, large liver. And occasionally some of them may have muscle disease as well, coexistently, and rarely occasionally cardiomyopathy as well. Now type 6 and type 9. Now th those are enzymes that will upstream in glycogen, glycogenolysis. Uh, the enzyme is called um, hepatic phosphorylase for type 6. And that again, uh, patients come with large liver and maybe only uh, hypoglycemia when they fast for long hours, maybe 24 hours, or when they're sick. Like for example, you have gastroenteritis. And type 9, which is an enzyme that activates the hepatic phosphorylase, which is called phosphorylase kinase. And that again, their patients incidentally are picked up with large livers or when they have hypoglycemia when they fast for long periods of time. And again, type 6 and type 9 are relatively milder. Now, in the past, we used to say ignore these patients, you know, just don't follow them up too aggressively. But there is growing evidence that these patients can develop scarring of the liver and fibrosis. So we are of the school that these patients also need close follow-up and good treatment. Now, type 0 is a disorder where uh, patients come with no glycogen because the enzyme is glycogen synthase that is lacking. Uh, these patients come uh, with either high sugars when they eat, and then as they fast, the sugars crash down. And they have increased levels of ketone bodies, so they have ketosis. Now coming back to ketosis, type 3, type 6, type 9 also have elevated ketones. In type 1, you don't have any ketone elevation, which is kind of very interesting. Now type 1, I mentioned type 1, but type 1 has two types, type 1a, and the type 1b. And type 1b is due to a mutation in a transport protein called glucose 6-phosphate transporter defect. And these patients are interesting in the sense that they also get neutropenia and a tendency for gastrointestinal inflammation or IBD-like manifestations. And they're very rare uh, subtype of a type 1. So you mentioned ketosis and some uh, obviously some muscle cardiomyopathy, but on, on a very basic level um, for our patients and our patient families out there, what type of symptoms may occur with somebody with glycogen storage disease? What, what, what do they present with and how, what would be a red flag there? And being a pediatric doctor, most of these patients are picked up when they're young. So, for example, you know, a child would come, let's say, at six months when parents start to wean them off breast milk or, or are start introducing solids and the child starts to space out their diet. So that's when they have symptoms. So when they fast, their glucose will crash down. Now, so I just want to add that whenever we fast, we have a couple of defenses. One is we eat, so where glucoses go up. The second thing, obviously, is that you, you kind of break down glycogen and you, you increase your glucose level. The third step is um, gluconeogenesis. You try to make new glucoses from other sources in your body, particularly proteins. And the last step is ketones, or breaking down fat. And ketones are a big source of energy for your brain and for your heart particularly when you fast. So in glycogen storage disease type 1, all these checkpoints, is glycogenolysis, breaking down glycogen, gluconeogenesis of forming new glucose, and ketosis, or making more ketone bodies, are all affected. 
So therefore, they get sick very quickly when they fast. So these big, these children, when they fast three up to four hours, their glucose crash down very quickly, and they become very symptomatic. And when you examine them, they tend to have a very huge liver. So for these children, their liver is below the umbilicus, almost in the right lower quadrant. And obviously, because these children, for many reasons, they also deposit more fat, so they look very cute and cherubic, you know, angelic-looking children, um, and have big prominent belly because of their large liver. Now, um, that is type 1. Now, type 2 patients, when they, they tend to have low glucose when they fast, and someone, a clinician feels their liver, their liver is enlarged. These children do not typically have a large spleen, so they have a pretty large liver, and some elevation liver enzymes. In type 6 and type 9, they come with, as I said, when you, when you fast for long hours, the glucose is a drop, and they have a large liver, and have elevated liver enzymes. And when the clinician thinks, why is the liver large, they could do a liver biopsy and find more glycogen in the liver, and they get picked up. Type 0 is an interesting story. So a lot of times, because the glucoses go way high to 300s, when they are eating and then the glucose has crashed down, a lot of times they get misdiagnosed with diabetes because they have elevated glucoses and they have, they have ketosis as well. And then only when they are admitted and they are fast, they realize the glucose crashed down and then the whole thing doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the type 1 diabetes picture with ketosis. Then they get diagnosed by an astute clinician with type 0 GST. So truth or myth? Mm-hmm. Glycogen storage diseases are only diagnosed in babies and in children. So, as I said, the types, especially type 6 and type 9, can be missed for years and can get picked up in older children, adolescents and adults. Most of the type 1s and type 3s get picked up when they are young kids. Now, the, the type 0 uh, glycogen storage disorders could be picked up later on in childhood, because children could go being missed with a diagnosis for years and then get picked up. Now, with, with the GST1, um, there, is a, there, is a, there is a variant we call the Amish variant and the Hispanic variant. Those patients may get picked up by ages 2, 3, 4, uh, because they have some degree of enzyme activity that keeps them going. Truth or myth? If a parent has glycogen storage diseases, their child will definitely have them. So... Almost all of them are autosomal recessive disorders, so you need both abnormal genes, except the GST type 9, we call it type 9A type A. Um, so a variant of type 9, which is more common, and that is X-linked. But still, um, it is very unlikely uh, that if the parent has a type glycogen storage disease, the child would develop glycogen storage disease. Unli unless, unless the father or the mother is a carrier, or the mother, or father, or the mother, I have the disease, and either of them, are, then the other partner is a carrier. Then you may have fifty percent chance of developing. That is so so unusual. But we do see in our clinical practice that some of the these children may have a tendency to develop lower sugars compared to the average child in the population. Um, a tendency called what we call as ketotic hypoglycemia. So the answer to your question is typically not. So how is this diagnosed? Is it a blood test, a clinical diagnosis, a muscle biopsy? I mean, what, what, how do you diagnose these? That's a good question. So I, I think, um, so, so most of the times we make a clinical diagnosis. For example, if you see a six-month-old baby or a one-year-old child with low sugars, crashing sugars, uh, needing sugar supplements, seizures because of low sugars, and then you examine them with a big liver, that is one of our big differential diagnoses uh, for glycogen storage disease. Now, 
as I said, for the type 6 or a type 9, you know, 15-year-old that has missed for years, uh, someone does a biopsy, and then you find excess glycogen in the liver, and then some is, uh, the pathologist will call the clinician and say, there is such suspicion of glycogen storage disease. From that point, we can reach out and do genetic testing that is specific to make these diagnoses. And that can be done from blood tests or from buccal swabs. We reach out for the help from a geneticist to make the diagnosis. So I know there's different types of it. So can you walk us through just some of the overview of treatment for this disease? Yeah, so, so basically the toughest one to manage is type 1. Now, uh, these patients uh, need to be on a regular uh, supplement of a low glycemic source of energy or glucose. So we, re- we resort to uncooked or raw cornstarch. Why raw cornstarch? Because raw cornstarch, each molecule of glucose has to be broken off from the molecule and, and, and you're going to be absorbed into the blood. And you don't get a big spike in glucose. And because you don't get a big spike in glucose, you're not driving more glycogen into the, into the liver to deposit more glycogen. Uh, and you just supply enough cornstarch to meet the day-to-day needs of the child or, or the young adult or, or, or the older patient. Um, so we use wrong cornstarch on a regular dosing basis. So in the beginning, it's every three hours. Uh, and as they get older, we go every three to four hours. Now, recently, in the last couple of years, there is a much more longer acting version of cornstarch called glycosate, and that the effect of that could last once you take it for about six to eight to ten hours sometimes, based on the patient's uh, needs. Now, uh, we also ensure that we don't give them simple sugars. So anytime you give them simple sugars, it's going to build up in the system, and when you give excess of simple sugars, that is going to be driven back into the hepatocytes to form more glycogen. So we try to put them on a regular dose of cornstarch to ensure that they just get their needs met. But at the same time, we try not to drive more glycogen into the hepatocytes. And what we see over, over time with, with this with treatment option uh, is that the liver shrinks down. Remember I, told, I mentioned earlier that the liver will be in the right lower quadrant. But as time goes by with good treatment and good follow-up, we see that the liver will shrink down to a more realistic size. Maybe instead of one or two fingers below the rib cage, could be like three or four. But and we also see an improvement in the metabolic profile. Uh, a lot of these patients, when they fast, we see their glucoses go crash down. And we see their lactates go up. That is a short term. On the long term, these patients, due to multitude of reasons, their triglycerides go way high, their uric acid goes high, and their phosphates go high. So, so basically, we see all these long-term changes and we see improvement in all of those. The triglycerides come down with good long-term metabolic control. Uric acid comes down with good metabolic control. So I'm a family member or a patient. What can, what can I expect when I come in and see either you or one of your colleagues at Cleveland Clinic Children's Department of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition? Walk us through that visit. We run one of the largest glycogen storage disease practices in the nation. We get patients from all over the country for, for that. And, and we are not restricted to seeing pediatric patients. We see adults too. So what happens is um, we have an intake process. One of our admin assistant is the coordinator for the program. And when parents call, uh, the call gets triaged. And we look, at, we look at what type of GST it is. And they bring them in for outpatient visit in the beginning. Um, and where we assess their clinical profile, their, their laboratory profile, uh, we check ultrasounds. And we, we run our, our clinic, uh, we have two clinics a month. Usually it's the first Monday uh, of the month and then uh, the, the last Monday of the month. 
It's a multidisciplinary clinic, so it includes myself, a nurse practitioner, Elizabeth uh, Robinson, and, and a dietitian, uh, Christina Calling. And, and we, we jointly manage the patient uh, and we give dietetic advices in the end. Now, to titrate the metabolic profile, we bring these patients in for a 24-hour inpatient admission. So they come in, they get IV placed, uh, and we monitor their glucose hourly. And for the ketotic type, we measure the ketotic ketone bodies every two hours. We also do a, a large profile of metabolic testing, including their iron levels, because a lot of these patients, because of the restricted diet, have a high propensity for iron deficiency anemia. And because of the restricted diet, they also have lower levels of vitamin D as well. So we also monitor their triglyceride level, their uric acid level, um, and also measure alpha protein. And why alpha protein? Because um, a lot of the, the GST type 1A, if the metabolic control is not good, they can develop adenomas in the liver. And over time, some of these adenomas can turn into hepatocellular carcinoma. But there is good evidence with good metabolic control that incidence can be way reduced. Do these kids grow up and can they live a normal life? Can they play sports? Is it normal growth? Walk me through that a little bit. So with good metabolic control, Dr. Steele, uh, they tend to do well. So I have patients who run three, four miles with GSTK 1A. Uh, they take some extra cornstarch before their physical activity. Uh, sometimes, you know, they use an extra source of glucose while they feel their glucose is going down. And now in this age of, um, of uh, glucose monitoring, Patients have put on Dexcom or continuous glucose monitors or other forms of continuous glucose monitors, and they're trying to follow the trend. Now, there are caveats to this in the sense that when the glucose goes down, we always ask our patient to do a finger stick and measure the glucose because we really want to make sure the glucose correlates with the continuous monitor. You know, so patients go to college, and we see that um, these children, um, over time, they tend to grow much better when the metabolic control is good. Uh, and as I said, if they have adenomas in the liver, for most part, as the metabolic control gets better, that also gets better. So what's on the horizon as far as additional research into GSD to improve treatments and quality of life? Um, so a couple of things. Now, there are gene therapies on the horizon. So there are gene therapy using adeno-associated vectors. The gene is incorporated into the vectors and then injected in. And the trials are just about to start. And we may be one of the centers for, for that, for gene therapy for GSD type 1A. Now, patients who have bad liver adenomas or dysplasia of the liver, uh, we recommend that they get a liver transplant. Now, one more thing I wanted to add. Now, GSD1, uh, particularly 1A patients, other than elevated triglycerides, as I mentioned, and tendency for gout due to elevated uric acid, they can also develop kidney disease. And the kidney disease in the beginning uh, it's almost same as type 2 diabetes with renal disease. So they tend to develop what you call as hyperfiltration injury, then subsequently proteinuria, and eventually progressive renal failure. They also have what you call as a, a proximal renal tubular acidosis presentation and a high propensity for renal stones, if the metab particularly if the metabolic control is bad. Now, there is good evidence that poor metabolic control um, has a high correlate uh, with poor kidney function as well. So some of these patients uh, can develop kidney failure over time. So we recently had a 50-year-old man uh, who has had GSD-1A for a long, long time, uh, and his kidney function started to worsen. So we, we referred him to our adult gastroenterology colleagues for a transplant evaluation, 
uh, as well as for renal evaluation. Why the liver transplant? Because um, once you do a renal transplant, it will be very hard to manage the diet with the liver transplant and also with the poor quality of life, managing a kidney transplant with tacrolimus and with all the, the secondary effects of tacrolimus like elevated triglycerides and all that would be a difficult thing. So there is growing evidence and growing support for this concept of doing a liver transplant first and doing a kidney transplant after. You know, and I should have asked you this at the beginning, but give me some sense for how common is this? Very good question. So the incidence of um, type 1A is about 1,500,000. In so it's kind of a rare disorder in general. Type 0 or GSD synthase deficiency, where you don't make any glycogen, is way, very rare. Like maybe about 50, 60 patients that are described in literature. Type 9 and type 6 are also very rare. So it's not like you walk into a clinic and you see a ton of these patients. Now, at the Cleveland Clinic, we see a quite a few of these kids uh, and adult patients with this disorder. But in general, they're extremely, extremely rare. You need a high index of suspicion to diagnose them, uh, putting the clinical picture and the laboratory profile. So I want to take this moment to get to know uh, you a little bit better. So first of all, what's your favorite sport? <laughs> I'm a runner. So, if you, and then, you know, I, I just got up and run. I, I, I used to run very, very consistently for years till I kind of lost my Achilles and fell down. But I've done about 25 half marathons. But I used to run almost a half marathon distance every weekend for like 12 to 13 years. What's your favorite food? Sushi. You get one trip, going anywhere, where are you going to go? I want to see the pyramids. Been there, they're very, very impressive. And so give us a final take-home message for our listeners about GSDs. So GSD uh, is a metabolic liver disorder and needs expertise and a team to manage. So at the Cleveland Clinic, that's what we do. We put teams together and we manage them. And we need consistency of management, good education of the parents. Now, these disorders are very rare, as you asked me earlier. And there are new treatments on the horizon. So the life of these, these patients are going to change uh, with the newer gene therapies. And we are very excited about the opportunity. Fantastic. And so to learn more about treatments offered in Cleveland Clinic Children's Department of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, please visit clevelandclinicchildrens.org slash GI. That's clevelandclinicchildrens.org slash GI. And to speak with a specialist in the department, please call 216-444-5437. That's 216-444-5437. And you hear me say it all the time. Remember, it's important for you and your family to continue to receive medical care, regular checkups and screenings. And rest assured here at the Cleveland Clinic, we're taking all the necessary precautions to sterilize our facilities and protect our patients and caregivers. Thank you so much for joining us on Butts and Guts. Thank you, Dr. Seal. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts.